But back then it really was constantly trying to prove that she was worthy of life and why, and constantly trying to contradict what they were taught in medical school or nursing school about my daughter. Hey, you're listening to The Rare Life. I'm your host, Madeline Cheney, and I am so excited to share with you episode 101 with mom, Tiffany Pasillas. Tiffany's second daughter, Ayana, who is now four, was diagnosed with trisomy 18 in utero. And because that rare condition is widely taught in the medical world to be, and I quote, incompatible with life, the pressure to terminate was immediate and constant during the remainder of her pregnancy. And once she was born, which was beating all odds, the battle to prove Ayana was worth fighting for was far from over. Tiffany continually fought with doctors to give her daughter the life-saving care she needed despite her diagnosis of T18. In this episode, she shares with us what that has been like for her and ways that she has evolved throughout the process. A huge aspect of keeping Ayana stable has been finding a food that she would tolerate, which as many of us know, isn't usually a simple task. And as it turned out, a blenderized diet was the answer. Tiffany uses and loves products made by an incredible company called Functional Formularies. Tiffany said, I use Functional Formularies because my daughter couldn't tolerate any other food. Their product Nourish has been a real game changer for her and has helped her grow so big and strong. Thank you, Functional Formularies. Now, let me tell you the genius of functional formularies. As parents of children with medical complexities, we are busy. So busy, not just physically doing all the things, but mentally and emotionally, there is just so much. So the idea of prepping blended, real, whole foods to give them via their tube can be utterly overwhelming and just not realistic. And for those of you who don't know, the process often consists of prepping food and then blending it into a puree that can be used in lieu of traditional formulas in a bottle. But did you know that there can be some incredible health benefits? Recent research done at Boston Children's Hospital about children that were fed with a blenderized diet showed a decrease in hospitalizations and GI issues. I'll link the study in the show notes in case you want to learn more about the effects they found because it's just incredible. And there are many families out there that give their children homemade blends. But what if that just isn't something you can or want to do, but you still want the health benefits for your child? That is where functional formularies comes in. They create shelf-stable blends of real food, matching the convenience of traditional formulas. Not only that, but they use 18, 18 (laughs) high-quality organic plant-based ingredients, each one selected with a nutritional benefit in mind. And I don't know about you, but if I were doing my own blends, they would be nothing close to that. Nothing close to that. So do you want to give functional formularies a go? Of course you do. Here are some ways you can try it out and see if your child benefits from making that switch before going to the ropes with insurance to convince them to cover it. Option number one, 
you can ask your child's clinician to request a free sample from functional formularies. There is a link in the show notes for them to do that. Option number two, you can go ahead and buy some and get 10% off your purchase by using the code RARE10 at checkout, which is exclusive for listeners of The Rare Life. And option three, you can enter our giveaways on social media. This weekend, we're giving away products to three lucky winners on Instagram, and then next weekend, we'll do the same on Facebook. You guys, this stuff is so great. It's helped so many people, and I encourage you to try it out to see if it is something that can help your child thrive. Check out the show notes for links to do all the things and to learn more about functional formularies. And a huge thank you to them for sponsoring this important episode. Okay, I'll tell you a bit more about Tiffany and then we'll dive right in, I promise. Tiffany and her two daughters, Leilani, who is five, and Ayana, who is four, currently live in Tucson, Arizona. Tiffany used to own a successful communications company, and you'll hear a little bit more about why that ended in the episode. She is a lover of reading and writing and tea, but not coffee. (laughs) All right, let's dig in. Hi, Tiffany. Welcome to the show. Yeah, thanks for having me. Yeah, I'm really excited to talk about your story. You have a lot to share, and I feel like it's important like for you to have a voice and for us to talk about these type of things. So I would love to just dig right in and hear about when you first found out that Ayana had any kind of medical issues. And I believe you had an actual diagnosis prenatally, right? You knew that she, what she had. Yeah. So it happened in kind of multiple phases. So when I was married, I'm no longer married anymore, but when I was married, this was our second living child. I had had a couple miscarriages before my first child and we actually weren't really confident in whether we were even going to be able to get pregnant when we were trying with Ayana. We were really concerned about that. But for whatever reason, it happened really quickly, actually, almost to the point where it made me nervous. And almost immediately from the beginning of the pregnancy, I was bleeding pretty heavily. And so we started, you know, the prenatal services like right away. And from the very first appointment, it was, well, it looks like you're going to miscarry. We're just going to wait and go week to week. And every single week we went in and every week it was the same thing. You're going to miscarry. We're just waiting for this. So that went on for the first 13 weeks. And then I'm going to interject. I don't know if you know (laughs) this, but like I've had five miscarriages. So I can just picture that like for 13 weeks to be on the edge of like, when's it going to happen? Holy cow. Pregnancy was really torturous. And like the way the diagnosis fit into it was really, really brutal because it was not this quick thing that you would like imagine it to be where you go to an ultrasound and they find something that it wasn't like that at all. It was the most drawn out process and, and really required so much waiting and limbo. Like uncertainty was just the name of the game. And it, I mean, it still is to a degree. So at 13 weeks, they considered me like older age at that point. So they're like, here, take an NIPT test. Mm. I didn't know anything about this. In hindsight, I don't think I would have done the NIPT test because I actually feel like it created the stress of the situation, the drawn out process. 
and the bleeding had stopped. So we had one week between that time where I was like, we were so happy. It was the happiest we had been in so long, like just really cherishing the pregnancy. We announced it to our friends and family. Like it was just, it was that moment, like where you finally accept your pregnancy. And I PT test came back like 14 or 15 weeks and it came back high risk for trisomy 18. And one, I have no idea what that is. Zero. I didn't even have experience with any sort of disability prior to this at all. Either had my ex-husband or husband at the time, Mm. but I will never forget that conversation in the office with the midwife and her pain of having to tell us and just it's what you see in a movie when they tell you something and you just like break down crying and I literally was looking around and like people are talking I couldn't hear anything I couldn't even focus and I was just so beside myself because I didn't know what this was and he just went internal he shut down I'm more of the like communicator let's press into conflict let's move through things he's more the let's peacekeeper let's shy away let's avoid conflict let's not talk about these things. So we each had our very, very specific ways immediately that came out in that room. And I remember we had our daughter Leilani with us and she was just barely one and she was on our lap and we were bawling. And I remember she just grabbed my hand, start crying already. And she just looked at me and she like knew how upset we were. And it was just a horrible, horrible moment. And I think every single family that has a diagnosis. I mean, it's just earth shattering, you know, and you're trying to make peace with that. And so we left that office with almost no understanding of what this was. And she had zero experience with anyone who had lived with it. So the message as kind as she was trying to tell it to me, because she did deliver my other child and she was very pro-choice, very supportive, And she's like, I will help you do whatever you want to do with this, but you need to also have some time to process this too. But she didn't know anybody that lived. And she's like, I'm honest. I don't, I don't know anybody who's living with this. I've only heard that kids die. And she said, to be really honest, because I said, what are the statistics? Like, what does the literature say on this? And she's like, statistically, we've been told that 85% will not even make it to birth. And so she said, the expectation is that you will probably have a stillbirth. That was the immediate expectation. And if your child is born alive, they will live till two weeks. If for some chance your child lives beyond that, she said, then that is so rare. She's like, it's less than 10% of those who lived two weeks that lived to their first birthday. Oh my God. So this felt like a just complete death sentence in a sense. And we get into the car and we're driving home and immediately I start Googling like every single mother <laughs> who receives and we should never. <laughs> we should. Oh yeah. <laughs> horrible, horrible. The, the images that came up, it was like the most extreme deformities, really staggering death statistics. I mean, it just painted the most dismal picture. And so in those few weeks afterwards, we took a couple weeks to digest, but immediately on that way home, we had started fighting and we really had different feelings about how do we progress forward with this? Mm-hmm. I mean, respectfully, so there's a baby inside my body and there's not one inside of his. So I think that's a hard thing to make sense of when you don't even have a physical connection yet. Yeah. And 
we had started fighting about termination because that's what was given as an option. She's like in Texas where we were living at the time that was not legal after a certain number of weeks. And she's like, so if you do decide that, I mean, you would have to do it like right now, legally, you're already oh at my the, gosh. and I was like, I'm not even ready to make that decision. And she's like, so your other option would be to go out to a different state. And she's like, of course I will help you in whatever way, if that's what you choose to do, but you would have to do it in a different state because Texas will not allow that. And she said, if you want to continue the pregnancy, she's like, of course I will care for you, but I would like you to also see an MFM. So she referred us out to an MFM locally who was horrendous. She made the situation even worse. She had this, just be positive attitude. Let's just, just be positive about it. Let's just wait and see what happens. And I was like, no, (laughs) No, do you see these statistics? Like, I don't want to do that. Oh my gosh. So eventually him and I going back and forth, he wanted me to terminate point blank. He wanted me to terminate. I did not, but I also felt like his reasons for terminating were really reasonable. He was really concerned about the suffering element with the limited information that we had. You would assume that if you brought a baby like that into the life that they really would be struggling and it would be a selfish reason. That's initially what the perception was of that. Right. And so I gave it another week and she said, well, it's 16 weeks. You can do your amniocentesis and that'll give you some time to figure out what you're doing. So we did the amniocentesis. It was not going to come back till 20 weeks because they sent it to a different state for oh, testing. Man. There was a mistake. <laughs> oh my gosh. Happened. So we now had to wait an additional month to even find out with hundred percent certainty, because my concern was what if this NIPT is wrong Yeah. and I'd go and terminate a child based on that, which I mean, abortion, I'm just going to call it what it is. It's not just termination. And so him and I were really arguing and distant during that time period and like in an agonizing pain waiting for this. It just was so brutal. But somewhere around, I want to say like the 17th or 18th week, I just felt like I had to go inward and really focus on my baby. Like, and so I really started getting back in touch with my body and feeling, what is she doing right now? I mean, I didn't know she was a girl yet, but what is she doing right now? And what I felt was, a baby kickboxing me. Like there was such a strength <laughs> and like she would not stop moving. And I was told that these babies don't move, that you shouldn't even be feeling her. And so right away, I felt this energy and strength. And I was like, but my baby's not doing what you're telling me is typical to this diagnosis. Yeah. Well, I just feel for you, like picturing those weeks leading up to that point, because it was so unlikely statistically for her to live past the two weeks, right? Mm -hmm. So I imagine that you were like, hey, how do we make a decision of like choosing between different versions of hell, right? Terminate now or lose her naturally now or later once I've gotten like even more attached to her or Mm -hmm. after she's been born and I'm that much more attached to her and watching her suffer. And so Mm -hmm. like I feel for you because those are hellish options And none of them are easy. None of them are simple or like, oh, we'll just do this. Right. And so I think that is just agonizing, like you said. No parent should have to make a decision like that. And so I I have so much, so much, so much empathy for newly diagnosed parents because it's every single one of us knows 
it's just hell. It is your worst nightmare and there's nothing you can do about it. You have to just move through it. It's completely out of your control, every element of it. And part of that is so much of like, but why are we making that decision? Is this about me? Is it my selfish desire to hold my child or am I sparing her pain by doing the termination abortion? Mm -hmm. It just flips everything that you had ever thought about on its head. And you're sitting there with like your head spinning. Like, I don't know what I believe anymore. Yeah. Like I remember very, I mean, I have an episode with, I don't know if you've heard it with a palliative care Mm -hmm. orally bills, like where we talk about just that whole, like, oh my gosh, like what is more selfless and loving for your child? Is it letting them go sooner and not having them suffer? Is it fighting for them in air quotes? Like what is more loving and more selfless? Because it really does make you question everything. Yeah. Once you're faced with that, you're like, holy cow, what an ethical like Mm -hmm. scenario of like, no one even really does know the right choice and no one else can make that decision but you. Oh yeah, my gosh. There is, yeah, like... there is no right choice because it's different for every person. Yeah. Oh my and gosh. I see that in our diagnosis community every day. I see parents who choose a whole spectrum of decisions and it's like, mm-hmm. they'll say, well, what do I do? You know, in these questions. And I just reply, you have to listen to yourself and do what you can live with. Like, that's what I say. Yeah. You need to be able to look at yourself in the mirror and not have regrets. And feel good about the decision you made as good as you can, because any decision you make is just, there's going to be really hard stuff that comes with it, no matter what. Well, like endless what ifs, like what if I had done this other option? I'm sure that is something that comes up a lot. Probably have to work on not getting so wrapped up in that of like, what if I'd done this differently? And if was that the right decision? And yeah, oh my gosh. Making decisions with the information you have at the time. And really like staying present with that because otherwise, I mean, you could spin yourself into the ground with that anywhere you could go with it. And it's also hard when you and your spouse are not on the same page, because at one point before I had really made the decision for myself, what I wanted, I actually was kind of like line teetering with it. I was like, well, I see what he's saying. I see the midwife tell I have all this evidence of these people telling me what I should do, quote unquote should, in this feeling, this gut feeling that is like the complete opposite direction. And that feels really scary when everybody around you, like even my family, my grandmother, my extended family, everybody knew what they were doing. They asked me, I think that's probably the best thing to do for the baby that you should terminate. And that was surprising to me to see how many people around me just accepted that. And I didn't have actually a single person until I had actually been more public about my decision that had come forth and been like, well, I really, you know, maybe you should feel this out or maybe you should think about it this way. Everyone was just immediately on board with whatever the midwife said. And that's part of, I think the hard levity of this too is when your medical professional is telling, recommending something to you, everybody gets on board with that because that's something you trust before a situation like this. And then once you get into this type of lifestyle, my trust for that is very limited. If I'm honest, (laughs) it's now how many years in we are, I have very little trust because it's just such a unique situation and they don't have experience with it. So how on earth can I trust that what you're telling me is correct for my unique child? Totally. 
Yeah, like there's this definitely like I feel like a moment in time that every parent of a child with a disability comes to where it's like this big realization of like, oh, yeah, doctors and nurses and all these people, they're human. It was the first time. It was the first time for me. I had never gone against like a doctor in the past and I had never assumed that they didn't know everything that they're talking about. (laughs) It'd be nice, right? It'd be so nice. Like, man, I wish they were perfect. They know everything, right? That's what you assume (laughs) going into this. I really trusted that. And I now know the opposite. But yeah, so at 20 weeks, I told him what I wanted about the week before. And he eventually came to the settling of, if that's what you want to do, I will support you. So we kind of had come back together. We had chosen a name Her name we chose was Ayana, and there was a reason for that. And then we got the call to come in for the amnio results. And I really, in my gut, already knew it was Mm. confirmed. But when we got in there, she said, yes, it's confirmed. And what are you wanting to do? And I told her I want to move forward with the pregnancy. And I told her about the experience with MFM. And I was like, I'm not going back there. Can't make me. And (laughs) (laughs) it was already starting. to protest. So she actually reached out to some colleagues that she had at a university and some recommendations came back for a genetic counselor up in San Antonio. So we were living in the Rio Grande Valley at the time, which is down along the border of Texas and Mexico. And the medical care there is severely behind. It's not innovative. Like you should not have surgeries down there for anything that requires any type of technique or skill, really, really big skills. And I experienced that medical care in person after her birth as well. So immediately she referred me up to San Antonio because we felt like prenatally that was going to be the best situation for us, a bigger city, more experience, maybe a different mindset. And initially that was the experience that we had. And so that was four hours from where we lived. So I drove that round trip every, almost every week. With my daughter, Leilani in tow, and my husband at the time would be coming up as we did stuff. And eventually we got to the point in the pregnancy where they felt uncomfortable with the distance, getting closer and closer. They're monitoring like the cord Doppler, cord pulsations, and all of the things. And when we did the anatomy scan with them, I will touch on that. She really wasn't presenting with a lot of the stuff that they expected. And so, and this has been a running theme with Ayana. Doctors see her even from prenatally during that first anatomy ultrasound. And they're just like, I know she has this diagnosis, but I'm not seeing the picture that I'm told from a textbook that I should be seeing. Hmm. And she was just very active. Like she never wanted to be seen on the ultrasound. She was always <laughs> putting herself over, which was hilarious. And really, I loved it. Cause I'm like that show of strength, you know? Yeah. And she looked very typical. She looked like a, a typical baby during the ultrasounds. We didn't see any issues with other organs, wow. her feet, her hands, her hands would be clenched. Sometimes, sometimes they were open. A clenched fist is like a very typical sign if you read like literature and then her heart showed some things but we couldn't really get a clear enough picture to know perfectly and what they did diagnose ended up being completely false after birth oh wow yeah so everything they kind of showed me on the ultrasound while we agonized over it in every appointment 
really wasn't an issue after birth. It was stuff that they actually didn't find on the anatomy that ended up being issues after birth. So that's been another part of this thing that I've realized afterwards is that the ultrasounds are really not as reliable as we all think they are, and they really can't see as clearly. And so the information that we are given, I've now learned, we take with a grain of sands, like you really can't leverage everything on it and focus on it and let it just unravel you because there is a chance that it's completely false or they're only seeing a part of it or they're not catching other huge things that will end up being really major parts of your medical journey later. And so we did that back and forth, back and forth. And then when we got to the point where they wanted me up there, they wanted me to move into the Ronald McDonald house and I was going to move in with my daughter. And my husband at the time was there still working. He was going to come up for the birth. That was the original plan. I packed us up. We did our goodbyes. We drove up there. I got into the Ronald McDonald house, unpacked. And the first night after we got in that next morning, the Ronald McDonald house manager came to me and said, you're not allowed to even be in this house. What? And she asked me to leave. And I asked why. And it was like some sort of admin issue in terms of they wanted me a specific number of weeks you had to be basically like within a week or two of labor and we didn't know when I was going to go into labor that was the problem the risk was that I could go into labor early and so we went back and forth the doctors got involved trying to get them to support and ultimately no I had to pack everything up and drive all the way back home oh my gosh and how far along were you at that point I think I was like 28 okay Oh my 28 weeks. <laughs> <laughs> Every week was really hard. Every week was yeah. just so much. And so I met with my midwife again and we regrouped and we're like, okay, so we're going to have to have birth here potentially, but then we could air flight out to San Antonio. San Antonio Children's was on board with the air flight. Oh I mean, it was so stressful. It was so stressful. Okay. So like, just to clarify, so they sent you back home knowing that you could go into labor at any time, four hours away from the care you needed for a child that was like statistically so at odds with even surviving. And they sent you back to where healthcare was like trash. Yeah. I mean, not trash. That's, that's, I'm not literally, gonna that's literally the sentence I said to them. And she was like, <laughs> oh my yes. Gosh. What the <laughs> heck? Okay. This is like one of those times, like what was Shocking. going on? Shocking. Admin and, thing and that's should... when I learned that the Ronald McDonald house isn't like a chain. It, there's no consistency. Each one is owned individually oh and they really gosh. can make up their own rules because we've had other Ronald McDonald experiences that were amazing. Wonderful. Oh my gosh. Okay. That was hard. That was a really hard, unnecessary yeah. blow. And it really defeated me. I came out of that. Like my baby's going to die. We're, we're going to die in the valley. That's what I thought. And I oh felt like gosh. this is out of my hands. I can't even control this at this point. And I have faith in Jesus. And I was really at that point leaning into that and just trying to trust that if this was what was supposed to happen, that that is her story and that is okay. And I can't control all of these things. I have to let some of this stuff go. Mm-hmm. And so that's what I did. I let it go. I met with our midwife. We made a plan with the local hospital. I went in and met with the neonatologist and all of the staff. And we put together like a basic plan. 
Which I like going back to what you said about letting go of control. I feel like, and we mentioned this when we were like on the phone the other day, mm-hmm. that surrender of control. I mean, can we talk about that for a second? Because I feel Terrifying. like that does make a huge difference, right? Mm-hmm. It sounds so like doomsday to be like, wait, you let go? Like, you know, you gave mm-hmm. up, but I feel like there's such a big difference between giving up and letting go of trying to control things that you have no control over. Yeah, because in a way, I mean, I could have just spun myself around and around and around with this and made myself sick. And that would have hurt my pregnancy even more. I mean, I wouldn't have gotten anywhere. It was such like a survival. I mean, I still had another child. She was just over one years old. She needed me every single day. I didn't have the luxury of checking out on this. And for me, control is the issue. I want to control things. And so I really was trying to practice getting back into my body, reconnecting and trying to release that control because in the end, it actually hurts me more than it helps. And with this situation, I actually felt personally convicted on this. Like I felt like this was something I was supposed to really come to terms with during this process was my control issues and really trying to lean into the uncertainty of it, the pain of it, the brutal parts of it, the things that were so wildly out of control. I mean, every single week, something would happen that I couldn't even fix it or stopped it if I tried. I mean, just things kept happening every single week. And at one point I actually sat myself down and was just like, do you not see the wave of uncertainty and out of control things that are happening here? Like you, at some point you got to unclench your fists and just let this be and just ride this a little bit. And there's moments where I'll feel a prompting and I'll be like, okay, yes, I'm supposed to step in here. I'm supposed to intervene. I'm supposed to push harder. I'm supposed to advocate whatever it is. But in the end, I felt like that Ronald McDonald house moment was actually like a huge door closing and doors had been closing leading up to that too. And I felt like a complete stoppage almost in a sense, if that makes any sense at all. Hmm. I just felt almost like a timeout. I needed to take a timeout and that's what I did. I went home, I like licked my wounds from that experience and I just sat there and I did a lot of stillness, a lot of just trying to be and take care of my child and just have normal moments for like a week or two while these doctors were scurrying around trying to figure out what are we going to do with this child that is coming like any week, you know, because the fear was, I mean, everyone was like, you're going to deliver early. They were so certain about it. And I did not deliver early with my first either. So I just had no experience with that either. So I waited and we met and we talked and I actually felt a lot of peace after that like week, week and a half of just kind of being. And then when I had the conversation with the hospital, I felt like, okay, I've done everything I can. Like there's literally nothing else that I can do here besides me packing us up and moving us cross country or something crazy, which it's not even humanly possible at that point. I was having a lot of preterm labor because I was in and out of the hospital with these preterm labor contractions. And at that point, my husband at the time and I were unraveling. There was so much distance. He was sleeping in a different room, completely shut down to me. I would like try to talk and ask questions or physical touch, just none of it. None of it was happening. We were completely disconnected. I felt like the whole pregnancy, I couldn't talk to him about what I was feeling 
because he was so internalized and I could see he would be sitting there and I could literally feel what was going on in his head. He was just ruminating on this and like in his own degree of suffering, he was in a lot of pain about this. And I don't know that he knew what to make sense of it with. And I didn't know what to do. We tried counseling and those things, but nothing positive was happening. But him leaving, I did not expect to happen. The timing of it, I did not expect to happen. And it really, it just compounded everything even worse. So at that point, I was 32 weeks pregnant with her and like going to court to get separation orders and like Mm. trying to navigate visitation and co-parenting now and planning for birth and all. It was just a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot. And I was losing everything. My whole world was literally imploding at the same time. And there was nothing I could do about it. It was just a complete loss of control in every area. So at that point, it was just me and Leilani going into the birth. I went into birth at exactly 39 weeks. We induced because it was a good week. So you made it. You made it full term. I never expected it. And so I sprang friends and everybody into action. Someone took Leilani and I went into the hospital. I had a lot of fear around that because of the care there. I did not feel like they knew what to do with a child like her. So I delivered at the only hospital that had a NICU there. It was not the level of care that we needed. The whole plan was to basically get transferred to San Antonio's NICU. But the doctors at McAllen ended up fighting me. Insurance was fighting me. Like it was my first entry into advocacy. And I had Mm -hmm. never had to deal with anything like this before and really was caught off guard. That is where I put a lot of trust in my community. And they're the ones who really guided me at that point. Because with trisomy 18, because it's considered in the medical world as non-compatible with life, that's why you've had to advocate so fiercely, right? Because I think like a lot of us, yeah, we need to advocate. But in that world, they're like, well, why treat? Because she's going to pass away. Is that kind of how it... The neonatologist during her birth literally said that. He's like, what's the point? She's going to die. And I overheard that in labor just over and over. Mm. And a lot of parents will hear this is just that oh, you need to accept this. These babies die and there's nothing we can do for you. But there is, there is actually things you can do, whether it's comfort care or whether it's actual interventions or surgeries, there is actually Mm -hmm. things we can do. And that's what I wanted. And the community that you found were the ones who were like, hey, you can actually do something about this and here's what you should do. Yeah, these kids were living and they're like, oh yeah, my son or daughter had that issue and this is what we did. And I'm like, okay, Mm -hmm. well then I'll ask for that. And then when I do that, I met with, resistance. And that was ongoing throughout our journey and to a degree still is there today. I will say we are in a very different place now because she is older. It's almost like they Mm. can't pull that anymore. It's more like wonder and amazement about her now. But back then it really was constantly trying to prove that she was worthy of life and why and constantly trying to contradict what they were taught in medical school or nursing school about yeah. my daughter, which is that they're vegetables, they don't live. The statistics are terrifying about these kids. But the problem with that and what I've learned is the statistics are outdated. Hmm. So we're going off of outdated information and have kind of biased medical care going on, which then influences these kids dying and then feeds right. into those statistics. So it's like, it did not rationally make sense to me. I'm like, you yeah. see her, take her 
at face value. Don't lump her in with everybody else because everyone's different. Yeah. Like, look at her. She's making eye contact with you. You've never seen a trisomy 18 child make eye contact with you. So maybe you should take that as, oh, she is really aware. She is making eye contact with me. She's Mm -hmm. crying. Let's respond to her cries. She is having reflex. Let's respond to her reflex. But it was not that straightforward at all. Mm. And it took me about two or three days to fight insurance and the doctors, but I finally was able to get everyone to release everything. And so she took her first medical flight. She's a little frequent flyer and she (laughs) took her first medical flight to San Antonio NICU. And we were there for two months. Leilani, my other daughter was in tow. So she's been with me this whole journey too. Mm. And our two months at San Antonio NICU was complicated to say the least. I don't have great feelings about them now. I feel like it was kind of like a bait and switch. They seemed really, really supportive. But once we kind of got in there, it really turned into what is known as slow coding essentially is where they kind of tell you what you want. And then like the whole let's wait and see Mm -hmm. and no action ever happens. And so we almost lost her. She almost died about three or four times. And the fourth time was so bad that I like called a care conference with them. We had a lot of care conferences and I feel like it was the moment I finally kind of stepped into my like mom of Ayana role. And I really put my foot down and was like, if you are not going to do what needs to happen for her, because she needed heart surgery, she was in managed heart Mm -hmm. failure at that point. And I said, if you're not going to do that, then discharge us. And I will go somewhere to someone who will. And Mm -hmm. they would never give like an answer either way. It was always like, well, let's just get her to gain a little bit more weight. And then we'll kind of regroup and talk about it. I'm like, no, I want a definite answer. So I, during that time period, sent her case over to a couple different places. I sent it to Phoenix Children's which is ironically where our care is now. And they actually denied her right off the bat based on her diagnosis only. They hadn't even seen her case. And so at that point, San Antonio Children's was not willing to do anything. So they discharged us home. She was five pounds on a feeding tube. And I mean, just the tiniest little thing. She was like purple. Her arms were all mottled because her heart function was so bad. Dozens of medications. And I went home and it was my first time kind of feeling like a single parent. Cause I went home to an empty house. My wow. husband, we were separated at that point. He was not there. So it was just me and the two girls and I had no nursing support, no nothing. And it was three weeks of some near death experiences with Ayana and just a lot of overwhelm mm-hmm. trying to manage two kids by myself with yeah. no support. And it wasn't until we all actually caught illnesses like flu and colds all at the same time somehow. And thankfully, you know, it ended up being a real silver lining for her because she got admitted to our local hospital and they helped me get her to a doctor in Austin that I had been trying to get into from outpatient, but could not achieve. My community had told me about this doctor from Texas Children's who had moved to a hospital in Austin. And he was a known cardiac thoracic surgeon and had worked on, I think, trisomy 21, but also some 18 kids a long time ago, like 25 years ago. So what that told me was that he had an acceptance, a long ingrained acceptance. And I really, really wanted to get her in front of him and see if he felt like she was a case for him. 
because I felt like mm-hmm. it was almost like my last shot. I had one other hospital in my back pocket that I would try after that if that didn't work. So she took her second medical flight from McAllen to Austin, which was about seven hours north of us. I packed up our whole house again, Leilani and I, and we moved up to the Ronald McDonald house up there. I had a really strong feeling that this was going to be a life or death situation. Like either this was going to save her life or I didn't know if we would be leaving that hospital with her. Yeah. She was in a really, really bad spot. And I felt like I don't know how much longer she could hold on without someone attending to her needs surgically. And it ended up when I met with him and he never even mentioned the diagnosis. He was like, I look at her heart. I see something that is easily fixed. I'm going to fix that. And it was just, I like cried. (laughs) It was, he was so refreshing to hear someone just accept my daughter for who she was and not like this label that had been slapped on her. Well, it just sounds so traumatic to be taking your very sick baby to these people who are supposed to be saving her and are like, she's not worth it. Like, fix my child, like save her. They were waiting for her to die. It was like the conversations were always about that. Everything was, okay, well, when she dies, when she dies, I'm like, she's right here and she's alive. And you're the doctors, like you're the ones who are supposed to be fighting for her. I think that that is so, I don't even know what the word is, but it's just so sad to picture like the fact that this doctor said, okay, yes, I see that this is an easy fix. I'll do it. The fact that that was like this exceptional doctor, like that shouldn't be how it is. And I'm also thinking like a lot of people listening have diagnoses more like Kimball's where it's like no one's even heard of it. Mm -hmm. And that can have its own set of challenges. But at the same Mm -hmm. time, I'm like, but at least they don't have the bias against them like you've had for your daughter because of trisomy 18 having this reputation. And I don't know. I just think that, that, you know, its own set of challenges right there, that the fact that they're so biased against that. You're like pushing a boulder up a hill from the very start instead of it just being like a flat, even surface. Like it's just, you're up against a wall from the moment you get that diagnosis. And like a lot of parents will talk about the shift that happens in their care the minute they receive that diagnosis where everything was easy before. And the minute you get that, it's now you're on a completely different track. And oh my gosh, it doesn't really go away. There's certain doctors I've met that are exceptional and have gone above and beyond for her and have always supported her. And they still do now. But there are so many doctors more than that that we have experienced because I, we now have been at multiple hospitals in multiple States. You know, I have a pretty wide experience. We were ones that had to travel a lot for care. We were not the people who just like had a trisomy friendly hospital next to us. Mm -hmm. And that's what we call it. We call it trisomy friendly or trisomy unfriendly in terms of doctors and hospitals. And it's something our community discusses heavily is like, who is friendly to this issue that I need to get solved. And we really help each other crowdsource what is the treatment plan? Like what has worked for our kids in the past? What hasn't? That's where these groups are so pivotal and have helped me so much because I didn't know what to do about this. This is not a typical medical situation. There's things that she has issues with that I have never even heard of before. And Mm. she has multiple rare syndromes and disorders, not just T18. And so it's really, for me, always been a huge responsibility on my part to not only like connect with these parents and glean every ounce of information I can get from any parent who's willing to share, but also to read medical journals, 
to educate and inform myself from a medical standpoint, to learn lingo and be able to speak it comfortably with these doctors, Mm -hmm. because I saw very, very quickly with these doctors, one, I'm a woman, two, I'm Mexican, but also I think they just saw me as like, she should be so emotional and broken down right now that she can't handle big decisions. I felt like that over and Mm. over and over was being placed on me. And I would have to literally say to them, look, I know that you are expecting me to not be able to handle this, but I can. So please trust me with speaking to me in a way that you would speak to anybody else. I said, don't be afraid to talk in your lingo to me. I will write it down if I don't know what it is and I will look it up later. But I said, I need to know the full picture because I need to be involved in this and I am not going to be hands-off about it. And the more straightforward I was about that and tried to like create rapport and trust with these doctors, the more I found that they would actually do that. And some of these doctors, I feel like we created a really strong bond. Her complex care pediatrician and her cardiologist specifically in Austin, like they have gone to bat for her life multiple times. And without them, I don't think I would have ever been heard in the hospital setting because the parents in these situations can easily get kind of tucked away and the doctors can kind of take over and do whatever they want. And when that happens, it's so dangerous sometimes because our kids just do stuff really, really different. Even medications, Mm -hmm. they metabolize certain medications quicker than other kids, but you wouldn't know that if you didn't actually have our kids. And that way, you know, a lot of us rare parents, like you do become the expert on your child's diagnosis because you're able to, and you take the time to educate yourself from other parents who have experienced the diagnoses and the doctors don't necessarily have the time or I don't know, maybe they don't understand how you could even do that of asking like these people living with these experiences. Because, you know, like in our case, like there's like one medical paper and it doesn't include a bunch of like main side effects of the diagnosis because it didn't come up in their research. But like found out from other parents Mm -hmm. I found in a Facebook group. And so I think that's just so valuable. They really do. (laughs) They know so much more. Like I've had doctors even say like, you guys really do know more than we do. And there's some doctors who really are like, (laughs) you're the expert. You literally are the one with your kid every day. It's a really interesting dynamic in all of this. So at that point, like we had Dr. Frazier signed on and a nurse actually said to me, like, I hope you have no plans of going home anytime soon. And I was like, oh yeah, no, I I assumed we'd be here for maybe four months. She's like, no, I think it's going to be much longer. And at that point, we didn't know a lot about her because the previous doctors either misdiagnosed things, they misdiagnosed her heart. They did not diagnose at all certain things that were present. They told me things incorrectly. So they did like a full, they started over basically and redid everything. And what we found was that her heart was in managed heart failure. And then we also found that she had rare infant liver cancer. And at that point she had surgical resection and then she also did chemo. We also found that she had epilepsy. We had to switch her type of feeding tube and we were there for eight months. And so basically that with the NICU was pretty much her whole first year of life. And at the point of we finished all of these things. We actually accomplished all these things, which I really, there were moments where I did not know if we were going to make it through this. I really did not. There was just so many issues. And I was like, we have to prioritize this. A lot of care conferences, support from our friends helping us through. And we ended up actually discharging home to my disbelief. And 
when we got home, I was kind of like, now what? (laughs) What am I supposed to be doing right now? Like, I don't even know. I think I just was so flipped upside down. Like I had just lost everything. My husband, my house, my money. I had to close my business in the middle, like in the NICU period, everything was just starting over. And now I have this baby, almost a one-year-old at this point with medical needs and disabilities. And I just, I didn't, I didn't know what I was doing. I didn't know what I was doing Mm. during any of this. And so at that point, it really became like a reevaluation of what do we need to do right now? It really was still survival mode because yes, we had finished that portion of it, but now it became actually addressing the life stuff of my husband leaving and me now being a single mom. And what does that even mean? Like, how am I going to work? How am I going to do all these things? And so at that point I had to really focus in on our life now and how different our life needed to be to accommodate these two very young kids and Ayana's specific medical needs. And the fact that I did not feel comfortable being away from that Austin team, given all of the horrible experiences we had had prior. The home that we were in was no longer my home. I had to move out as quickly as possible as part of the orders. And I hadn't, I didn't have a job anymore. I had to close my business and I knew that I needed to be home with the girls. I needed to be caring for Ayana at that point. I felt like we were on kind of like a tipping scale where if I did not manage her care for a time that we really could tip back into instability, I felt like she really Mm. needed a period of time where we were just trying to keep everything as steady as possible and helping her heal from all this. And so we ended up moving into an RV. I got a used RV on Facebook marketplace and I gutted it and renovated it on DIY and super cheap. Mm. And we moved into that. I like erected a wall in there and we put her medical crib in and all these things and kind of made it like a little mini three bedroom, 350 square foot little apartment. And we ended up moving up about 40 minutes outside of Austin so that we could be close to her care team that had Mm. gotten us through the past eight months. Because you were living seven hours from Yeah, we were seven hours previously, right? Okay. So we moved up there and we just basically started life as a family of three in an RV and my life as a medical mom, you know, the appointments and managing all the kids care as a single mom with no support. And so that moved us into like year two of her life. And now here we are, she's going to be four in September and it's been a journey. It's been a real journey. We're finding our way. It's not been easy, but I don't know that I would do anything different at this point. I feel like I followed my intuitions. I followed my faith promptings and I really listened to Ayana and we're here today and she's happy and healthy Mm -hmm. and she still has her challenges, but I feel like we're continuing to just keep moving forward as a family at this point. That's amazing. Well, and when I hear you say that, like, I just think of all the growth and transformation that you've had, I'm sure, throughout this journey. And I would love to wrap up with qualities that you have gained because of this. Are there things that you see in yourself that you're like, I've changed? Yeah, I'm completely changed. I don't know how you don't change from this. (laughs) (laughs) I feel like I've had- Good luck. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, it's almost impossible not to be affected by this so deeply. You know, I would say the very biggest way I've been affected by this was- in terms of facing uncertainty, I think we all want to control that uncertainty. 
or we want to get out of that place of uncertainty because it's just so uncomfortable and over and over and over and over and over again, like more times than I could ever count. I had to like talk myself through the discomfort of the uncertainty that we were living in in that moment. And there's always going to be uncertainty with her life. I don't know when she's going to pass. That is something that is always looming. And I have friends whose kids have passed away and it's hard. It's a reminder that her life is really fragile. All of our lives are fragile, if I'm being honest. But in terms of this diagnosis, like I have to confront that uncertainty and I have to confront my discomfort with that. And I have to be able to sit in it. And if I'm not okay, it's okay that I'm not okay. Or if I'm scared, it's okay that I'm scared. Like I have to allow myself the space to feel whatever I need to feel to keep us moving through that because there's no way around it at all, but Mm -hmm. through it. And the more I fight that, the harder our journey is. And that resistance is really felt when I try to fight against whatever is happening at the time. And the more I just kind of try to ease into it, try to just let stuff wash over, even if I have to, if I have to be that passive, that's the only way that I can get through this stuff today. And I will say like Mm -hmm. pre Ayana, I was not capable of doing that. You know, I really fought against whatever was happening at the time. Like, no, I'm not going to let it be this way. And I tried that in the beginning (laughs) with Ayana and it didn't work. (laughs) It did not work. God was like, no, this is actually not in your control, Tiffany. So none of it is. And I've had to try to really seek out the joy in the hard moments too. You know, we were in hospitals with her and things were touch and go. And I still would have to like smile and laugh and play with Leilani or the videos I have of the inpatient days where I have Ayana, a little tiny Ayana in one hand and Leilani's playing in the other and they're smiling. And like that to me was what it was all about was just Mm. to get those moments together if we could get them. Yeah, I really, really like that. And I feel like that surrender of control is like, it's against all the most powerful instincts. Like Mm -hmm. we have these instincts to like, I want like tight fist around this and just like, I need to control this. I need to fix this. But yeah, you know, I do think that that's a skill that we all kind of need to learn. And especially as we have children that have medical complexities, it's just like releasing that illusion of control or like trying to control I also kind of like picture it almost like you're falling down like an emperor's new group. I don't know. I was picturing like that waterfall. Like, hey, we're like sharp rocks to the bottom, like bring it on, you know, <laughs> but just being like fighting the urge to clench and to scream and be like, now I need to be loose while I fall down this waterfall mm-hmm. to my death. Like, I feel like it kind of goes against all instincts, kind of like that would, but like that it does make really tough things just a little bit more manageable or like a little bit less horrible. Yeah. It takes the edge off a little bit it's almost it reminded me of childbirth with my first like yes because I had a natural birth that was something and I just feel like the more I was clenching and like fighting it the harder and harder it was and I felt that same resistance during certain times of Ayana's journey where like doors would close everything would Mm -hmm. start like going wrong and because I was fighting 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 trying to force things into how I wanted it to be and And I still, I feel like it's a constant practice. I constantly have to remind myself every day, like, okay, I need to relax. I need to let this be, or let this person be, or just let the situation be and understand that I can only do so much. And sometimes I have to just kind of hands up and let things kind of play out a little bit. And then I can decide 
what needs to happen at that point. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it has to be a constant back and forth because you're not saying to give up. It's very apparent from your story. Like there was plenty of advocating, plenty of fighting and doing what it took to get her the care she needed. Mm -hmm. But like you say, it's like realizing at certain points, like, hey, I've done as much as I possibly can. And now I'm going to like kind of sit and wait and see what happens. So I know what to do next. I love how you phrase that because I think that's an important like distinction. Yeah, especially as a single mom, too. I think the resistance is a dynamic that is played up even more too as well. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Tiffany. I loved hearing your story and I know that it's relatable to so many people listening and I just really appreciate you coming on. Thanks for having me. Head to the website to see adorable photos of Tiffany and her family or follow her on Instagram. There are links to follow her and me in the show notes. Also in the show notes are links to Functional Formulary's website and all the ways to learn more about and try out their products. You should do it. You'll be so glad you gave it a shot. Join us next week as Tiffany and I talk more about the ending of her marriage and what being a single medical mom looks like for her. Don't miss it. See you then.